Weird Comics History episode number 29. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. Uh, we like to bring you some weird comics history sporadically on Tuesdays, although recently not as sporadically. You mm-hmm. can find us over on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Yes, and this week we are going to uh, wrap up our three-week exploration on the mysteries of Marvel Man. This time we're talking about when he went from Miracle back to Marvel again. Uh, And we'll do our best to recap the last two episodes in case you're joining us fresh here. Um, Let's see, we start with Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel and his related comics were uh, created and published in the United States by Fawcett Comics. This was from 1940 to 1953. Uh, these comics were licensed for reprint in the UK by L. Miller and Sons Limited. When the original Captain Marvel comics dried up, they would uh, they that's L. Miller and Sons would hire Mick Anglo to create new similar characters for publication, so they could just slide them in and take Captain Marvel's place. Mm-hmm. And so Marvel Man and the Marvel Man family. Were created. Marvel Man would end its run in 1959, and L. Miller and Sons would liquidate their assets. Years later, the UK Warrior magazine, this is an anthology of comics that began in 1982, they purchased the rights to Marvel Man, specifically so Alan Moore could write his deconstructed take on the Marvel Man character. Yeah, and we go through every issue in the other episodes, so if you mm-hmm. want a more expanded version, you definitely should give them a listen. Uh, after that, Marvel Comics sent a cease and desist letter to Warrior, which they more or less rejected, and then <laughs> ceased operations for unrelated reasons. In the United States, Eclipse Comics became part owners of the Marvel Man license. Beginning in 1985, they reprinted Warrior Magazine's Marvel Man as Miracle Man to avoid complications with Marvel Comics. In 1986, Eclipse added new stories penned by Alan Moore. Then Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham would come in and produce eight issues of their own that began in 1990, and that's, uh, that ran until Eclipse Comics folded a couple years later. Now, at this point, the deal for Marvel Man changed. Eclipse would own two-thirds of the character, the stories, all the good stuff, while Gaiman and Buckingham owned the remaining third. This is a joint between the two of them. Uh, originally owned by Alan Moore, who had forwarded his rights to the new creative team, and he suggested that every creative team would pass forward when they gave up the book. Uh, then Todd McFarlane of Image Comics came along and bought Eclipse Comics' assets. This is 1996, and he did so with the specific notion to revive Miracle Man. He'd promote the character and even put out an action figure and a statue, but the right the issue of the rights was about to rear its ugly head. Yeah, so finally we're gonna talk about Neil Gaiman, give a very brief bio of the man. Very brief. Because he is very much worth an episode of his own, but probably under different auspices, I think. We'll do a full, more full one. Uh, his name is Neil Richard McKinnon Gaiman, born on November 10th, 1960, in Portchester, Hampshire, England. He was a voracious reader from the age of four and was affected by many of the usual suspect books. Seems like he just might have written all of his own biographical information available online. Very specific. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> but we can, we can guess it would be The Invisible Man, right? It would H.G. Wells, yeah. Yeah, Ray Bradbury, sure. Uh, around the age of 20, he would contact his favorite science fiction writer, R.A. Lafferty, and would receive some literary advice in return. In the early 1980s, Gaiman took to journalism, becoming a regular writer for the British Fantasy Society. He'd eventually be published in Imagine Magazine in May 1984. It was a short story called Feather Quest. 
Also, in 1984, he'd pick up a copy of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing while waiting for a train. He claims that Moore's writing had an incredible impact on his own. Also, in 1984, Gaiman would publish his first novel. It was called Ghastly Beyond Belief, and it was a biography of Duran Duran. Uh, In the interest of brevity, we're going to hop ahead to to Gaiman's comics work. Uh, In addition to Miracle Man, Neil would contribute strips for... uh, 2080s Future Shocks, which uh, we're saying a lot in this series. Uh, He, along with Dave McKean, would put together a trio of graphic novels. We got Violent Cases, we got Signal to Noise, and also the tragical comedy or the comical tragedy of Mr. Punch. Uh, He would eventually gain the attention of DC Comics, where he would be offered to do whatever he wanted for his own limited series, and he chose Black Orchid. They were kind of giving away those uh, deals to, to people of a certain dialect of those days, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, uh, DC editor Karen Berger took notice, and she was impressed. And so she offered Neil the opportunity to put a new spin on the concept of the Sandman. You might have heard of it. Yeah, that one might have made some waves <laughs> in, the, uh, in the comics world. Now, uh, Gavin and McFarlane would meet, first meet at Dragon Con in Atlanta, Georgia, during the summer of 1992, where they were both guests of honor. They did not discuss business or working together at this point, though. When it came time for Todd to extend the invitation, Gaiman was a bit trepidatious to ask him to write for, I guess, Marvel Man or any, eventually other things. Uh, Neil says, from my perspective, there were a number of downsides to working with Todd and to working with Image. They were, despite their obvious commercial success, the industry laughingstock at the time, which meant that by working with them, by putting Mr. McFarlane in a position where he could use as his sole advertisement for Spawn 9, a black page with the word Gaiman written on it, that was something that was lending him cachet, and I had to decide whether or not I was willing to do that. During the initial conversations, Todd did not mention money, which, according to Gaiman, was a wise move. More from Neil, he said, what he talked to me about was showing unity with creators, sticking it to the big companies, complete creative freedom, not signing anything away, and just being. And Todd was finally able to persuade Neil. Uh, Neil recalls, when I was still wavering, he also said, okay, you know, I think I've got Alan Moore now, uh, where I've got Alan, and I think David Sim and Frank Miller are going to say yes. Come on, it's the big four. You can't be left out. And those were the things he used to persuade me. When Neil agreed to script to issue nine, the, the contract between he and McFarlane was oral, which is to say, not in writing. Mm. Duh. Now, this oral agreement made no mention of copyright or compensation. McFarlane, however, did assure Gaiman that he would treat him, quote, better than the big guys, and uh, we presume that means Marvel and DC. Neil recalls a conversation he had with his agent, Marilee Heifetz, when he sent her her share of the loot, which was 10%. He says, she phoned me up and said, where's the contract that goes along with this? And I said, there is no contract. Todd has said he's going to treat me better than anyone else would with a contract. Yeah, and you can almost just picture the camera panning it in her face, like, <laughs> looking, dun, dun, looking dun. dead at the camera, like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, without a paper trail, it's difficult to deduce whether this better treatment was in reference to rights or compensation. Well, we can discuss the rights issue, since it's where it's all headed anyway. Yeah, okay, all right. We were uh, kind of dancing around, getting into the nitty-gritty of it, but let's, <laughs> let's, let's discuss compensation first. Neil Gaiman received $100,000 for his work on the million-plus selling Spawn Number 9. Gaiman testified that this amount is what he would expect from Marvel or DC had he taken a work-for-hire assignment from them. Damn, Damn. that is some (laughs) dough, boy. Uh, Then and now, let me tell you. 
Uh, Absolutely. Worth noting, he also received a check for $10,000 simply for agreeing to do the work and another $10,000 for acceptance of the for the acceptance of the finished work, which he mentions was less than his advance for DC for Black Orchid or Black Hawk Kid, as we have talked about before, but that's a yes. different Neil Gaiman story. Uh, <laughs> for completion's sake, and to perhaps see a pattern of behavior for Todd, each of the four guest writers received checks for $100,000. That's to say, a flat $100,000. A nice round number, no calculations, no extra paperwork. You dig? Just... Easy breezy chunk of loot, you know? <laughs> uh, and there were talks of extra monies when newsstand figures came in, because that was still something in play back then. Uh, but that was never followed up on. Yeah, we didn't get much information on that. But uh, before we move forward, let's do a little bit of a refresher on Work for Hire. Uh, we've discussed it before, and we will very likely discuss it again. Uh, please remember, neither of us are lawyers, so we're going to do our best. Uh, we have a copyright acts here. We have the Act of 1909 and 1976. They both feature different definitions of work made for hire. In 1909, it said, In the interpretation and construction of this title, the word author shall include an employer in the case of works made for hire. So employer and works made for hire are not defined separately. 1965, the Ninth Circuit chimes in, and we get what they say. We believe that when one person engages another, whether as employee or as an independent contractor, to produce a work of an artistic nature, that in the absence of an express contractual reservation of the copyright in the artist, the presumption arises that the mutual intent of the parties is that the title to the copyright shall be in the person who at at whose insistence and expense that the work is done. Right. And so, uh, so whoever commissioned the work owns the work. Uh, and so in 1976, work made for hire is now defined as, one, a work prepared by an employee within the scope of his or her employment, or two, a work specifically ordered or commissioned for use as a contribution to a collective work, as a part of a motion picture or other audiovisual work, as a translation, as a supplementary work, as a compilation, as an instructional, instructional text, as a test, as answer material for a test, or as an atlas. If the parties expressly agree in a written instrument signed by them that the work shall be considered a work made for hire. So, per the 1976 definition, Neil's work for Todd McFarlane was not work made for hire. Added to that, without a written contract or agreement, Neil was technically never Todd's employee. Though, it ought to be mentioned that this can be rather nebulous when we take into account what it means to be an independent contractor. And not formally or explicitly defining employer or employment as it pertains to the provision, things can get dicey, and they did. <laughs> now, that's not really an issue here on the face of it, as argued in 1992's Schiller and Schmidt Incorporated versus Nordisco Corporation at all. Uh, copyright assignments must be in writing. And as we've mentioned, we don't got none of that here. No. Uh, in Gaiman's testimony, he stated, quote, he made it explicit that this was not work for hire. When asked to elaborate, he said, he, meaning Todd, said, you are not signing anything, but you are also not signing anything away. 
When this finally does get lawyer-heavy, Gaiman's lawyer would write that the characters created were not done on a work-for-hire basis, but, quote, pursuant to the terms of an oral agreement under which Mr. McFarlane agreed that Mr. Gaiman would be compensated on the same terms set forth in Mr. Gaiman's DC Comics Agreement deal dated August 1st, 1993, and uh, we'll get there. Yeah, so in Spawn number 9, that was March 1993, cover date, Gaiman introduced three new characters— Medieval Spawn, Angela, and Cogliostro. Gaiman provided the script, McFarlane provided the art, um, leading Gaiman to believe that they were joint owners of the copyrights, but McFarlane did not share that opinion. Todd conceded that Gaiman was co-owner of Angela, however claimed full ownership of Medieval Spawn and Cogliostro. We were to look at the indicia of Spawn number 9, it would say that Spawn and the Spawn logo are copyright McFarlane. And at the risk of spoiling the end of our tale, if we look at the 2013 digital version, there's an added line which reads, Cogliostro, Medieval Spawn, and Angela at trademark and copyright 2013 Todd McFarlane and Neil Gaiman. But Hmm. we'll get there. That's a a little (laughs) bit of foreshadowing. Yes. Uh, In 1994, McFarlane approached Gaiman about doing a three-issue Angela miniseries, which would spin out from a story spur in Spawn number 26. December 1994 cover date. Gaiman was paid $3,300 for the bits he wrote in Spawn 26, an unknown amount that exceeded $30,000 for the Angela miniseries, December 1994 to February 1995 cover dates. McFarlane would get into the action figure business with Todd Toys, now McFarlane Toys. We've talked about that before. Uh, The first wave of, uh, probably in the Spawn episode, I would think. (laughs) Probably. Uh, The first wave of Spawn figures included two versions of Spawn, a normal, normal and hamburger head variant, <laughs> and the clown, overt kill, tremor, violator, and medieval spawn. Hmm. Neil Gaiman received a check for $20,000, which was designated as royalties, but Todd's record-keeping system wasn't, isn't so precise as to tell us for what. <laughs> Again, just a nice chunk of change. That's how he likes to do business. That's it. Uh, Neil would inquire and find out that it was for the action figure, and also note that he received co-creator credit on the package. Mm-hmm. Now, here's where it gets sticky-er-er-er. Uh, McFarlane set to publish a line of trade paperbacks to collect the Spawn series. Before doing so, Todd applied to the Register of Copyrights for copyright registrations on the books and the issues therein. And wouldn't you know it, he got them. And so, the books carry a copyright notice with the added bit, quote, all related characters are copyright by McFarlane. Uh, In late 1995, Neil Gaiman became concerned when the Angela action figure and trade paperback were released and he was no longer seeing royalties. He says, I was concerned that there were toys coming out, the Angela toys specifically, that I was getting no money for, and that either just published or were about to publish the Angela trade paperback, the first one, and I was concerned. There seemed to be no royalty provisions or anything, and I wanted to find out why I was no longer getting anything. Todd's people cited their not being business people for lack of payment. <laughs> that is a understatement, I would yeah, say. Sorry, we don't know business. What? You know, uh, Todd would later say that his imprint didn't do royalties. Instead, he'd send people what he called love checks, which he said were more generous than any royalty could be. Neil remembers the love checks and didn't really trust them. He said the only way thing that things seemed to work was that one would get these checks and 
they would say, here's a check for 800 bucks because Todd thinks you're a good guy. <laughs> Apropos of nothing, the Angela action figure made the cover of USA Today, where it was referred to as the most inappropriate toy of the year, according to the American Family Association. Uh, you might as well coat the thing in chocolate uh, at this point, though. Folks yeah. were snapping the sucker up, and I'm going to say being on the cover of USA Today did not decrease the sales at all. Probably, Probably not. Probably not, right? Yeah, despite their, uh, you know, being against it. Their best efforts. You're right. Uh, Neil was also a bit worried that if McFarlane were ever to sell his company or somehow lose control of it, whoever was put in charge would have no paper trail to connect cre- his creations to his bank account, uh, which really is what this is all about, right? Yeah. Uh, if I could just step outside of the, of the uh, <laughs> narrative for a second, it, you know, there's a lot of ways to look at this. Obviously, we're, we're, we, this is Chris put this all together, and he has done a terrific job of giving us the facts and as many quotes as probably you could you could stand jamming in this thing to like paint the picture. But uh, it's easy to look at this as being you know Neil is being a Neil Gaiman is, is being and, yeah. a jerk or whatever or like he's a money money hungry. Mm-hmm. But it's like no, if you don't protect your work, you know what I mean. You if, lose if you it. Yeah. If you do everything on a handshake. Everything's great on a handshake and good times, but when times are bad, suddenly, Mm -hmm. you know, things get different. Anyway, uh, so Neil said about this, uh, I was also concerned at this point that Todd might at this point. I still trusted Todd, and I was rather concerned that he might either sell to Mattel or get hit by a car or something, and that whoever took over from Todd would find no pieces of paper that had any kind of that listed what my share of what I created for him was. Now, he continues uh, on the uh, thread, if anything were to happen to the Todd Meister, he says, I don't trust your wife to send me love checks or to even know what they're for. I've created characters for you. You are using them. If you go on to do TV or movies and put them in, there's a whole other world out here that we have not yet gone into. Let's get this down on paper. And so during a powwow in Phoenix in 1996, Todd was insistent to keep their current arrangement going, and he attempted to convince Neil of his generosity. Neil recalls, I would, I would much rather have a written contract and $500 in royalties than $1,500 that was going to turn up on a whim and could end the moment you decide it's not convenient. So you're probably wondering by now, uh, when does this come back to Miracle Man? Oh, right. This whole thing was about uh, <laughs> Miracle Man the whole time, wasn't it? Oh, well, we're getting there right now. During this discussion, Todd mentions to Neil that he just purchased Miracle Man and asked Neil what he wanted to do with the character. Neil replied that he wasn't sure. Todd said his lawyers looked over the ownership arrangement between, between Alan Moore, Neil, and Mark Buckingham and assured him that he would honor Neil and Mark's 33% ownership. <laughs> Neil said that Todd said, Well, I have had lawyers look over the agreement you made with Alan Moore, and I think we could break it, but obviously we're going to honor it. We're going to respect your third of Miracle Man, but we need to figure out what it is, and it may be a bargaining chip. And Neil was okay with that. Yeah. Now, the following year, on July 15, 1997, Neil wrote a letter to Todd. In it, he recounted the conversation that they had earlier that same day, and he states the following. That Todd agreed to use the, quote, figures they put together based on the DC deal for all future payments in regard to the use and sales success of the Angela character. Now, the DC deal appears to be just a blanket term at this juncture that describe what Gaiman would have been paid by DC Comics for similar or comparable work done. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Er, uh, Neil agrees to <laughs> Neil agrees to return Todd 
full ownership of the characters of Medieval Spawn and Cogliostro in exchange for Todd's alleged 66.6% controlling ownership share of Miracle Man. Wow. And again, uh, Gaiman and Buckingham shared that other third of the rights. Now, in addition, Todd would also have to hand over any Miracle Man inventory or film that he received via the Eclipse buyout. Oh, but I hope not those friendly dictator trading cards. <laughs> those those might have tipped the scales. Todd was like, no, I'm not giving those. First of all, I've opened all of them. <laughs> They're not worth anything. They're not worth it. I've been playing with them anyway. <laughs> now, now, this exchange was set to occur on August 1st. And until that date, that is to say the two weeks between the letter and the day, Todd would continue to pay Neil for the use of Medieval Spawn and Cogliostro based on that nebulous DC deal. Uh, Neil also mentions that he would be paid a $5,000 bonus, quote, essentially as an apology for having dragged this thing on so long. We're not done yet, folks. Uh, Neil also claimed exclusive right to the Angela character for future one-off stories both in and outside of Image Comics, wherein he would receive 100% of the revenue. Neil claims to have approached both Marvel and DC with ideas for one-offs. They, Marvel and DC, he says, were very enthusiastic at the time. And when they phoned Todd, nobody would put them through to him and he didn't return calls. They're not businessmen, remember that. No. <laughs> uh, now also, that there be best efforts made to ensure and depict that Angela was created by, quote, Neil and Todd in any of her future appearances in comics and out, because there was that Spawn animated series on HBO at the time, and it did feature Angela. And, of, you know, as expected, Neil wanted his share of that as well. Uh, now, perhaps uh, we're a bit too deep at the point at this point, but uh, all this hoopla for friggin' Angela? Really? Yeah. And it wouldn't go it wouldn't go away either, Chris. You know, that's the thing. We're not putting this to bed yet. Angela's still gonna be hanging around. It's still gonna, gonna be lodge for a little uh, you know, yeah. It's like God, I wish I I wonder if Todd McFarlane's ever like, why did I ever hire this guy? Anyway. Uh Todd replied with a handwritten letter on spawn letterhead. He started with my dearest Neil and signed it Toddy and a smiley face. It's very businesslike. Uh, in it, he agreed to terms, however, requested clarification on some of the royalty issues. Whether or not the royalty demanded should be divided by two for the artist, for example. Uh, whether the DC deal differentiated between creation of all new characters like Cagliostro and derivatives like Medieval Spawn. Now, Neil replied on, with a handwritten note of his own. Now, all of this correspondence was dated July 15th, 1997, as mentioned. Now, Neil started his letter with... Dear Todd, hurrah! And ended it with Trella. I, I guess that's uh, good, right? I guess, right? That's, I'm not sure. That's optimistic. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, he clarified that the royalty that he quoted Todd was all for the writer. Uh, he also conceded that the derivative formula of uh, uh, the, the derivative nature of Medieval Spawn, and he formulas down, him down to 50% of what he would get for Angela. All right. So, all's well that ends well, right? 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 Oh, come on, we're only about, what, 15, 14 hours into this thing? Yeah. It can't be over yet, right? No. Uh, now, following the exchange, and under the new terms of the post-July 34th deal, Todd paid Neil royalties on trade paperbacks that featured Angela, also foreign reprints, as well as a Randy Bowen-designed Angela statue. When total, the royalty checks sent over the next 18 or so months would amount to around $16,000, which is arguably a fair amount less than Todd's regular love checks. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, on February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1999, Neil would receive a very special Valentine from the Toddster. In it, Todd announced he was rescinding any previous offers placed on the table. Offered Neil a take-it-or-leave-it deal. He'd have to relinquish all rights to Angela in exchange for all rights to Miracle Man. Hey, that's right, Miracle Man. That's right. That's what this, all about him. That's what this is all about. We keep forgetting. And didn't Todd already give Neil Miracle Man? This doesn't seem like a fair trade, does it? Uh, yeah, we're getting over there. Uh, apropos of probably nothing, the following year, the character Angela would die in issue 100 of Spawn of <laughs> November 2000. So that could, could have been a moot issue, but it is comic books. So. Uh, he made sure to mention that all rights to medieval Spawn and Cogliostro would remain with Todd McFarlane Productions. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, we jump to a 2005 interview with UGO.com. In it, Todd would say, quote, With the lawsuit, Gaiman walked away from Miracle Man. I have the trademark for Miracle Man. No one wants to say it out loud, but that's what happened with the lawsuit. Everyone was like, ha ha, he killed Todd. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on where you're standing, he had to pick some copyrights to some Spawn characters or pick Miracle Man. He didn't pick Miracle Man. Now, UGO follows up asking if Todd, if Gaiman took Angela. Todd says, yeah, he took some Spawn stuff. For whatever reason, he walked away from Miracle Man, so now Miracle Man will be in the Image 10th Anniversary book. This is 2005. Didn't, didn't, Image, didn't Image launch in 1992? Yes, it's okay. Okay. So, <laughs> Image works on its own schedule. They're not know. businessmen. Yeah. Uh, now, what... <laughs> What actually appeared in the Image 10th Anniversary book, which is sitting right on my shelf there, was an illustrated story, not not normal comic sequential art. And it didn't feature Miracle Man, but it featured the Man of Miracles. The who now? Soon, soon. All right. uh, Now, let's finally put a bow on Angela, though we can't promise. We'll mention her a time or two more. In fact, I'm pretty sure she... Pops up again at the very end of the story. (laughs) On January 30th, 2012, NPR, that's uh, Minnesota Public Radio, reported that the McGaiman McFarlane legal, that the Gaiman McFarlane legal (laughs) dispute, we call him McGaiman to put him together. Yeah. Uh, Gaiman McFarlane legal dispute was settled. Todd said, and Neil Gaiman and I had a resolution in our legal dispute. And as part of that, he ended up with the rights to Angela. Whatever Neil chooses to do with something he owns is at his complete and utter discretion. What Neil chose to do was sell the rights to the character to Marvel Comics. She would be integrated into the Marvel Universe at the very end of the 2013 Age of Ultron event. There was a crossover event which takes place on Marvel's Marvel Earth's 61112 and 26111. Her first Marvel appearance would be in Age of Ultron number 10, June 2013. Come to the 2014 Original Sin event... Angela would be revealed to be the long-lost sister of Thor. Hmm. And she would have at least one failed series since, and I'm not positive what's going on with her now. This is true. So, with her out of the way, who owns or owned Miracle Man? Uh, You know, I gotta say, Chris, (laughs) given everything we've learned and you studied... I have no idea. <laughs> well, we're we're going to find out that we're in pretty good company of being confused okay. in a little while here. Uh, now, to answer this question, we're going to have to go back to the summer of 1997. Todd and Neil have made nice, and uh, they've come to that agreement to trade the rights for Medieval Spawn and Cogliostro for Miracle Man. So far, so good. Now, Neil states that this exchange didn't quite go off without a hitch. It would take Todd's people, because Todd was on the road or something, a few days to get everything sorted. 
he would eventually get the physical Miracle Man film. However, it was incomplete. Neil suggests that during the Eclipse bankruptcy debacle, the company owners might have made some unscrupulous deals with some unscrupulous folks, uh, perhaps selling some of the Miracle Man film under the counter to a fella in Canada. Hmm, interesting. Uh, Todd Powell, Terry Fitzgerald, phoned Neil to inquire if he knew anything about Miracle Man Triumphant, which was an unpublished series written by Fred Burke with art by Mike Diodata Jr., Neil recalls there was one man who I mentioned before who was bidding for Miracle Man in the Eclipse auction and wanted to know if Mark Buckingham and I would be willing to continue the series if he got the rights to the share of Miracle Man that Mark and I did not have. And I said, sure, you know, we wanted to get on with it. You know, good luck in the auction, but he never sent me any film or anything like that. As of this recording, the pages for Triumphant recently surfaced and are available online. It's set to spin out the following the events of Miracle Man number 22, with the aftermath of the Yay Kid, Yay Kid Miracle Man is Dead Carnival. Mm-hmm. Now this leads to a bit of digging and unearthing some rumblings from the UK. And this is 1998, and we will uh, rejoin our old friend Dez Skin. He right. still he, he claims he might still own Marvel Man slash Miracle Man, meaning that Eclipse might not have actually ever owned anything <laughs> outside the publication rights. If that doesn't complicate matters enough... On October 27, 1997, Todd McFarlane filed trademark applications for the use of the Miracle Man name and also filed an intent-to-use application for the character. One, this is serial number 75379619, had to do with, quote, toys, namely action figures and the, access- the accessories therefore. Also another, serial number 75379919, with printed matter, namely comic books and posters. And then a third, serial number 75379920, with clothing, namely shirts, athletic t-shirts, shirts, uh, athletic shirts, t-shirts, caps, and jackets. These would all be abandoned on February 26, 2000, then refiled as serial number 76283194 on November 13, 2001, with abandonment on that on <laughs> September 11, 2012. Oh, it's so weird, man. <laughs> it's, <Isn't> it? <laughs> it's, like, it's like everyone is diving for this ball, but nobody wants to play the actual game. You know, they, just, they, they all want to hold the football or whatever. <laughs> uh, for completest sake, the spawn trial blow by blow. This was argued January 5th, 2004, and decided February 24th, 2004. Uh, uh, Sorry, United States Court of Appeals, Seventh Circuit. Gaiman brought suit under the Copyright Act against McFarlane, seeking official declaration that he jointly owns copyrights for the characters with Todd. McFarlane intended to plead with a statute of limitations defense, but the jury said no go. So he instead pled with the defense of uncopyrightability, which uh, is apparently a word that actually exists. Uh, Not according to this uh, spell check, but yeah, apparently. The statute of limitations request went out the window because game and suit is not for copyright infringement, as the way he views it, other properties are of shared copyright. Doesn't sound like it would make much of a difference, but in a court of law, it does. Mm-hmm. Now, the uncopyrightable characters Todd lists are Cogliostro and Medieval Spawn. Angela, he concedes, at least during the trial, is a co-owned character. Now, the concept of uncopyrightability begs the question, if these properties cannot be copyrighted, how then does Todd claim ownership? 
Well, his argument is that they became copyrightable after subsequent stories were written about them. <laughs> uh, now, the question of disparate comic production steps being uh, copyrighted is raised. The court documents attribute the creation of a finished comic book to four individual artists. You got the writer, the penciler, the inker, and the colorist. The poor letterer is uh, left out in the cold yeah. as usual. Now, it's the finished product that's copyrightable, not, say, just the coloring. Uh, this idea has dropped pretty quickly, but it you know makes for interesting food for thought, I suppose. Yeah, uh, it just shows really how complicated this, this <laughs> what a mess, all right? gets, yeah. Uh, like the, the, you know, so the black and white gets one copyright, then the final <laughs> thing gets another one. Uh, Todd's second argument concerned the doctrine scenes of affair, which means scenes for action, normally used in the theater, but also has a meaning in law. It is that a copyright owner can't prove infringement by pointing to features of his work that are found in the defendant's work as well, but that are so rudimentary, commonplace, standard, or unavoidable that they do not serve to distinguish one work within a class of works from another. This was added to the legal lexicon after James M. Cain attempted to sue Universal Pictures in 1942 over a scene in the film When Tomorrow Comes, wherein a couple wait out a storm in a church which was too similar to a scene in his 1937 novel Serenade. Judge Leon Rene Yankwich uh, ruled that there was no resemblance between the scenes other than the incidental scenes affair. Now, in referencing this doctrine, McFarlane contends that his characters cre- that the characters created were initially stock in nature. It wasn't until later on, when the characters were given defining and copyright facilitating, I suppose, characteristics. Per United States copyright law, uh, Nichols versus Universal Pictures Corps, 19, uh, Corp. 1930 even, uh, <laughs> copyright protection cannot be extended to the characteristics of stock characters in a story, whether it be a book, play, or film. Which is to say one couldn't copyright a concept like drunken man or talking cat, you know, or witch. Right. It's, uh, you have to actually have some meat on those bones. Mm-hmm. Um now, the argument Todd raises is that Cogliostro is described by Gaiman as a, as an, quote, unexpectedly knowledgeable old wino. The counter-argument is that while Gaiman's initial de- description is fairly stock, once the character was given flesh, so to speak, under Todd's pencils and Neil's script, he became sufficiently distinctive to be copyrightable. So, I mean, this really all comes down to, you know, uh, literary and art. You know, criticism, essentially, you know what I mean? Like, it, <laughs> and, it, and a lot of semantics. <laughs> in, in a court of law. But literally, you know what I mean? It's like whether it's, it's you sure. kind of have to like look at it and squint and think like how derivative is you this? deconstruct the whole thing, you know, yeah. What, what constitutes a... Uh, when did it become copyrightable? Yeah. When wasn't it? Yeah. It's very, very uh, crazy job to be a lawyer, <laughs> I think, sometimes. <laughs> well, anyway, that's Cogliostro sorted. So I guess now let's look at medieval spawn. But I have to say, Chris, on the face of it, <laughs> Sounds like a pretty derivative character, right? Uh, what did you say? <laughs> uh, the, like, uh, the name Medieval Spawn, though, is not a proper name, but a description. Uh, the court documents compare this to the Lone Ranger. The descriptor Medieval Spawn was added by McFarlane later on in issues Gaiman did not contribute to. The court believes Medieval Spawn to be copyrightable as it is a derivative of original recipe Spawn, who is in no way a stock character himself. The decision rendered on February 24, 2004, gave Gaiman all the relief he sought. A, re- a rehearing and bank request was denied on March 31, 2004. 
Now, we mentioned that Man of Miracles oh, before, yes. so let's, uh, <laughs> let's muddy the waters a little bit more with the Man of Miracles. Uh, now, we mentioned that Todd was planning on reintroducing Mike Moran slash Miracle Man to the world by adding him to Spawn's universe. And uh, if you remember, Todd said as much himself when he was discussing that right. Image Comics 12th anniversary book, or 10th anniversary, whatever. <laughs> uh, 10 plus well, 2, because I think it yes. was, yeah. Now, as we mentioned, that didn't exactly happen. However, in Spawn issue 150, October 2005, uh, uh, cover date, a derivative of Miracle Man called the Man of Miracles was introduced. It wasn't long before that he had an action figure as well. Uh, if, you've, if you've seen the character or figure, it's basically Miracle Man with an emo haircut <laughs> and a stylish jacket. Wow. I mean, he even has the MM logo on his chest. <laughs> Wow. And the, uh, the packaging reads, copyright Todd McFarlane Productions. Seriously. Uh, now, for completionist's sake, the Man of Miracles has since been revealed to be an ageless, genderless being who may or may not have been Jesus Christ. Uh, but his true form is the, quote, mother of existence. Well, certainly not derivative. No, no. But I think we've already spent too much time on the uh, Man of Miracles. So, so let's, <laughs> let's clear up the issue of those rights. <laughs> uh, Marvel 1602. Gaiman was approached, and this is not actually the. This is a title of a of a story of a book. Yes. Of but we're not going back to Marvel in the 17th century. It might feel like we have been. It that far seems back in like time, we but... are jumping around a lot, but no, this is still in the 2000s. Uh, Gaiman was approached by newish Marvel editor in chief Joe Casada to pitch a project for the new look, harass less Marvel, harass less Marvel comics. <laughs> the press release hit the internet October 24th, 2001. The project would become 1602, which is basically a Marvel superheroes living in the Elizabethan era. And if you ask Chris, a pretty decent cure for insomnia. But the Elizabethan era also is kind of a cure for insomnia. Well, not, not all of it, though. But, uh, <laughs> the Elizabethan era was chosen by Gaiman in the wake of the September 11th attacks. He didn't, have to write, he didn't want to have to write about planes, skyscrapers, bombs, or guns. Uh, this would be the first comic script that Neil wrote in half a decade. Critical reception was mixed, but for the most part polite, because Neil Gaiman. Bastions of Comics News, uh, Time Magazine, uh, of course, where everyone goes there for their <laughs> comics news. Yes. List, however, listed it as the worst comic of 2003. And there were issues of Marvel released that year. Right? So, I don't know, I gotta, <laughs> gotta wonder about that one. But since this is a Gaiman story, Marvel designated it to its own universe, Earth 311. So why are we even talking about this? Well, Marvel agreed to donate all profits from this project to Marvels and Miracles LLC, which was or is a game and foundation set up to clarify legal rights to Miracle Man. Neil says, I'm particularly pleased that Marvel has agreed to donate all their profits from this project to the Marvel's Miracles Enterprise, which I formed initially to help clarify the rights to the much-missed Miracle Man, so that ultimately old and new stories can again be put in the hands of Miracle Man's readers. He continues, once those rights have become clear, I plan to dedicate all of the profits which any Miracle Man publishing might generate, beyond those needed to make sure the original creators are being properly paid, to comics-related charitable organizations. What a guy, what a mm -hmm. guy. Uh, in Neil Gaiman's Prince of Stories, St. Martin's Press 2008 publication, Gaiman would address the Marvel Man rights Mishagas. He said... 
Actually, it looks as if the rights to Marvel Man were held by Mick Anglo all that time. <laughs> it was always copyrighted to him, and not to Len Miller. And Des Skin admits he has no right. He had no rights to Marvel Man and did nothing to obtain them. <laughs> Mick Anglo was legally pursuing Eclipse all the years I was writing it, though they never mentioned this to me. They were working out a deal with him that then died when Eclipse died. Worth noting, Des Skin was quoted in Kimota from Tomorrow's Magazine, or the. Uh, is it a book? Probably, yeah, it's uh, a book. Yeah. Uh, what he that he did have a gentleman's agreement with Anglo, while at the same time denying that Anglo held any ownership of the character. <laughs> what a trustworthy guy from a guy named Isn't Jez. He... I don't remember. <laughs> He's trustworthy and humble, and very so we've humble. learned a lot about him. Yeah, absolutely, yes. yeah. Now, in 2007, the rights were. This is where it gets even muddier because the rights were either sold to Emotive and Company, a company called Emotive and Company, or they were just acting as like a uh, an agent for Mick Anglo. Okay. Uh, Alan Moore recalls somebody from Emotive called me up and said, explained that they had been working with a son of Mick Anglo's who was a musician, that this son had told them something of the Marvel Man story, that they decided to get involved because it sounded to them as if Mick Anglo was being cheated. So they told me a few things, such as the fact that L. Miller and Sons hadn't gone bankrupt. Whoa. Therefore, the Marvel Man rights should have never gone to the, the official receiver, and so on. Uh, Moore continues, if I'd known that, I would have never taken the job. And yes, if I can help, I do feel bad I must have been instrumental in taking these rights for them rightful owner, whoever that might be. Neil wrote of this, the, as of this writing, there is no resolution, and a motive and company representative simply stated, this is an ongoing situation that will probably still take years to fix. He continues, I know they bought the rights to Marvel Man from Mick Anglo for £4,000, which is approximately $5,585.56 in the U.S. dollars, and have been working hard to establish his ownership of the property. I've chatted with the guys who bought the Miracle Man, Marvel Man rights, and wished them well. When asked about Marvel Comics' involvement, Gaiman said, It remains to be seen. Emotive would contact all parties involved in Marvel Man, Miracle Man publications since the days of L. Miller and Son. Then, in May 2009, a curious listing pops up on eBay. In it, the seller was looking to sell issues 8 through 16 of the Eclipse run with a few autograph copies to boot. In the listing, there was a note that read, In speaking with Gary Leach, co-creator of Miracle Man, he tells me that there is yet another bizarre twist in this tale. Plans are afoot to completely revamp the character with a new name, a new costume, and new artwork, but keeping Alan Moore's words. Gary was not pleased to say the least. That means it is very unlikely that the original Miracle Man comics will ever be reprinted as originally intended. Everyone, please take note of that. Which, which, by the way, that's sort of what Mick Anglo did, right? When he first switched over from <laughs> Mar to Marvel Man, he just kind of like whited out some words, yeah. But uh, now this, this here is obviously baloney. But uh, and, and it feel and we're only including it here because of just how nebulous this entire rights issue had been yeah. up to this point. Because right, this was almost something believable because it was absolutely like, who knew what the real story was. Sure. And, and we got to figure that the seller is probably adding this to maybe up the value of these, quote, never-to-be-reprinted oh, yeah, issues. I think that had a lot to do with it, yeah. <laughs> now, the seller, uh, you know, you have a, the, 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 the stopped clock being right twice. He did say that an announcement would likely be made at that year's San Diego Comic-Con. And as luck would have it... Marvel announced during the 2009 San Diego Comic-Con that, in the, world's, in the words of then-editor-in-chief Joe Quesada... 
Marvel Man belongs to Marvel, citing that the company outright purchased the character from Mick Anglo. This was the culmination of an endeavor began in 2007 with more than a little help from Neil Gaiman and a winning bid to Emotive, who were themselves cons- considering to reprint the whole Magilla under the title Master Man. <laughs> oh, God. There, are, there are very, very uncreative-looking logos for Master Man. I, I mean, you, you are starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel for M words here. Yes, you know, what do you got, just so what, you don't have to change the costume. You know, you got, you got a lot more <laughs> after that. But uh, Marvel president Dan Buckley said, Mick is 94 years old, and I talked to him Wednesday for an hour and a half. Thanks for yeah, sharing thanks for that. Sharing nice. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Uh, he also noted that there were plans in the works for the character and his existing stories, including the ones folks actually cared about, i.e. those pesky Alan Moore ones <laughs> that we're not sure who owns or what. Uh, <laughs> but now we do know. Uh, reprints aren't all, though. Casada would say, I'm excited to see this character not just at Marvel, but the continued adventures of Marvel Man. This hinted that Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham would be able to would finally be able to finish their run from a quarter century earlier. Right? Wow. <laughs> now, before moving on to the Marvel plans, let's let's finally wrap up Mick Anglo's yeah. story. Uh, we left him just as he created a, a Marvel Man there, or did whatever he did with it. Uh, <laughs> now in, uh, in 1966 is where we'll pick up, and this is when Anglo would work with John Spencer and company. John Spencer was a pseudonym for Samuel Assell, who launched this company in uh, 1947 and would pu- publish mostly pulp magazines. For them, he would edit the weekly TV Tornado series, and that was an odd anthology of comic strips and text stories based on television shows featuring Batman, Superman, The Man from Uncle, and also some King Features uh, properties like The Phantom. Uh, He would uh, also contribute stories for the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Green Hornet uh, sections. Uh, Anglo from there would move to Top Sellers. There's a publishing house that he'd done some miracles Spaceman resells for a few years earlier. <laughs> if you remember, he, yeah. uh, <laughs> he he had the two-word Miracle Man. Right. Uh, he would also uh, package reprints of DC Comics-related strips for their Super DC anthology series there. He'd also work sporadically in comics for the next decade and a half. Mick worked for a comic. He was the joke writer for comedian Tommy Cooper, a that kind of a comic, who famously <laughs> died of a heart attack on stage during the variety show Live from Her Majesty's. When the crowd thought it was part of his act, we'll say it was because Mick's joke was so funny. <laughs> and you, uh, that that video is available online. It's very strange. Oh, okay. Maybe we'll. Yeah, it's that. very uncomfortable watch. <laughs> it sounds like it might be. Maybe we won't. Just know that it's out there. Do a search. Yeah, do the obvious search easy. for Tommy Cooper. You'll find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anglo retired in the early 1980s, and in 2009, at the age of 93, when the whole Marvel Man Sticky Wicked was worked out, Anglo would be interviewed in the Marvel Man Classic Primer June 2, 2010 cover. And he would also draw the cover. He passed away on Halloween 2011. Mm -hmm. Now, back to Marvel here. On uh, November 10th, 2009, Marvel Man became a registered trademark of Marvel Characters Incorporated. Serial number 777-88673. For comic books, magazines featured magazines featured printed stories in illustrated form and comic book stories and artwork, posters, printed periodicals in the field of comic book stories and artwork, printed visuals in the nature of comic book stories and artwork. In 2010, Marvel began re-releasing uh, a series of hardcovers featuring the early adventures of Marvel Man. And yes, they used the word Marvel Man on the cover and in the book. Uh, whether this was due with, with their being cool with it or just not wanting to put in the time and effort to edit every single page yeah. of the story, we don't know. Maybe it was a little bit of... Probably a little, a little from each side, yeah. <laughs> 
Now, Marvel Man Classic Volume 1 was released August 25th, 2010, and would collect Marvel Man issues 25 through 34, and that included the a feared-to-be-lost issue that was number 26. Now, again, these are the L. Miller and Son stories, not the Alan Moore ones, which is why so many uh, there are so many strange and confused reviews of this book <laughs> yep. on Amazon.com. Uh, Marvel Man Classic Volume 2 was released February 23rd, 2011, and collects Marvel Man 35 through 44. Marvel Man Classic Volume 3 was released September 14th, 2011, and collects Marvel Man 45 through 54. Marvel Man Family's Finest was released March 16th, 2011, and collects Marvel Man Family 1 through 6. Young Marvel Man Classics Volume 1 was released May 25, 2011, collecting Young Marvel Man 25 through 34. And Young Marvel Man Classics Volume 2 was released January 18th, 2012, collecting Young Marvel Man 35 through 44. So you're probably wondering, what about those Marvel Man stories we actually care about? Yeah, not those old, uh, (laughs) you know... Bummy ones. Uh, on September 5th, 2012, Miracle Man became a registered trademark of Marvel Characters Incorporated, serial number 85720902, for comic books, magazines featuring printed stories in illustrated form, and comic book stories and artwork, printed periodicals in the field of comic book stories and artwork. They also registered serial number 85720895 for action figures and accessories, therefore, collectible toy figures, toy action figures and accessories, therefore, toy model hobby craft kits, which was abandoned November 19, 2015. So it's unlikely we're going to see any <laughs> Miracle Man toys or hobby craft kits in the future. Dang it, I, I was looking for that hobby craft kit. Uh, now, back to those stories we all care about. Uh, Alan Moore chose not to be credited for the Marvel reprints of his Marvel Man, Miracle Man work and refused to take in any of the profits. Moore says, there there was at a time I thought, yes, I did a lot for the of work on it, and it would be nice if, I don't know, Leia and Amber, those are Moore's daughters, were to profit from it in the future. But by the time Marvel Comics were involved, I just thought, no, let it go. Give all the money to Anglo. <laughs> he received a contract. Which is sort of his thing, isn't it? This wasn't, isn't no. it? Yeah. <laughs> now, he would receive a contract from Marvel, which stated he could take his name off the strip if Marvel would make any alterations to the artwork. Moore said, no, just remove it regardless. He says, I got back and said, no, <laughs> this is irrespective of whether Marvel makes any changes to the artwork. Worth noting, Moore is still just as confused about the rights as, well, even we still are. He says, after 25, 35 years of this stuff, I'm no closer to knowing anything. And everything that comes up just seems to make the matter more complicated, more murky. So we can all uh, feel good about ourselves for being in the same boat as I Really, yeah. (laughs) But no one knows, so don't feel like like something's being hidden from you, folks. Yeah, it didn't go over our heads. It went over all of our heads. (laughs) Now, for these Marvel reprints, Moore was only credited as the original writer. His name is left off completely. That's right. Uh, Talk a little bit about Grant Morrison here. He did the all-new Miracle Annual Number 1. That was February 2015 cover date. As the warrior run of Marvel Man came to a close, Des Skin mentioned receiving a pitch from then-unknown Glaswegian fella named Grant Morrison. It was a short story starring Kid Miracle Man chatting up a priest before his London rampage. Grant would say in a 2014 call with Joe Quesada, I'm sure I have the script somewhere. Maybe I'll dig it up and just post it online for the fans just for the fun of it. Quesada implored him not to and offered to publish it. Grant agreed so long as Quesada provided the art himself. 
The decent, though, short story. It was meant to be a six-pager in Warrior, after all. Uh, it's called October Incident 1966 and appeared in All Numerical Man Annual Number 1 and cost four ninety nine. This marked the first new, and that is to say not already published, uh, Miracle Man story in about 15 years. There was also a short Miracle Man family story included, written by Peter Milligan with art by Mike Allred. Now into the future. Uh, before we get to the future, we need to uh, let's talk about the sales figures here, uh, because I, this is a story that I think I've kind of romanticized in my head yeah. to being something that everybody should care about, and uh, we're about to find out that not everybody does. Yeah, uh, we're going to use the Marvel Miracle Man sales figures from Comicron, and you got to remember every issue of this is five dollars. Uh, January 2014, Miracle Man number one. It was the 23rd best-selling comic of the month and sold. 52,313 copies. Get a pretty sizable dip. January, uh, that same month, January 2014, Miracle Man number two, another $5 down, and that is 44th for the month at 36,927 copies. Which actually is somewhat normal attrition in comics. Though. Sure. Let's, sure. Be, let's be real. They usually have the first one. <laughs> uh, yet. No, we're not, though. <laughs> uh, February 14th, Miracle Man number three. That was position 81st of the month. Sold 25,970 copies. And March 14th, Miracle Man number four, 96th of the month. Not too bad of a dip here, though. 23,557 copies. We skip a month and go to May 2014. Miracle Man number five was the 107th best-selling comic of the month with 23,399 copies. Same month, Miracle Man number six. Uh, this is the 117th best-selling book of the month with 20,598 copies. Now you might think it's going to level out here. June 2014, <laughs> Miracle Man number seven. It's only slipped one position, 118th of the month, and it sold 19,123 copies. But then the following month in July... Miracle Man number eight is at 163 position on the charts, selling 17,654 copies. And uh, August 2014, number nine came out with it as the 136th highest selling book of the month. 16,466 copies sold or shipped or whatever. Right. Uh, September 2014, Miracle Man number 10, 153rd best selling book of the month, uh, 15,409 copies. And uh, two of them for October 2014, where they have shipped two issues this month, I guess, huh? Yeah. Uh, Okay, Miracle Man number 11 was 181st position on the charts, uh, shipped 14,824 copies. And number 12 was 183 on the chart, uh, 14,634 copies. November, uh, Miracle Man 13 came out, 151st bestseller of the month, 14,155 copies. We get uh, a little bit of a jump here. December 2014, we get the all-new Miracle Man Annual. This is the 118th bestselling book of the month, but does uh, sell quite a bit more, uh, 21,644 copies. So uh, the first all-new story uh, drew a little bit of interest. Right, the new content drew some people in. Uh, but then, <laughs> in January 2015, Miracle Man number 14 was at one position 149, and it uh, shipped 14,024 copies. Basically, went right back down to where it yep. was in November, February uh, 2015. Miracle Man number 15 was at position 150, shipping 14,548 copies. And March of that year, number 16 was 159. The position of 159, shipping 13,595 copies. 
Now look at that February book. This is Miracle Man 15, right? That's the book that you can't find under $100 for the original. Wow. You know, this is the eclipse. This is the rampage of Kid Miracle Man. Oh, okay. Where you you can't find this book, and it only sold 14,000 copies. Yeah. It just doesn't seem... Right. I think I think people. Yeah. Anyway, we'll talk about reasons yeah, possibly we'll get to after that. The, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, we got two issues in September of uh, 2015, so we're jumping ahead. The, we're skipping the summer, and we are relaunching. This is not Miracle Man number 17. This is Miracle Man by Gaiman and Buckingham number one. This was uh, the 69th for the month. Uh, 69th, the uh, highest seller for the month with 27,269 copies. September again, Miracle Man by Gaiman and Buckingham number two. This is the 98th position for the month, and we have 22,143 copies. In October 2015, Miracle Man by Gaiman and Buckingham number three was at position 118 on the chart, shipping 19,375 copies. And in November of that year, the number issue number four was at position 134, shipping 16,825 copies. December 2015, Miracle Man by Gaiman and Buckingham, number five, position 161 on the chart, selling or shipping 15,427 copies. Then the final issue of this arc, January 2016, Miracle Man by Gaiman and Buckingham, number six, 153 for the month, 14,200 copies. Wow, that is quite, Mm -hmm. quite a dip from its beginnings. Uh, Miracle Man by Gaiman and Buckingham, The Silver Age. Uh, the first three issues of this series, which would have included the first all-new chapter and hopefully leading to Gaiman's proposed and third and final book, The Dark Age, were solicited but never released. Hmm. Axel Alonso, then Marvel Editor-in-Chief, claimed that they were waiting to resolicit so they have a seamless release from reprint to original material. <laughs> Uh, which hasn't, I don't think that's happened. i got to be honest with you. It but, hasn't. Uh, <laughs> and so we wait. And luckily, Miracle Man fans have uh, gotten really good at that. Well, you know, I'll tell you, because you, you find out that the story might actually be continued two decades down the line. You know what I mean? <laughs> it could be 2030. It, it could be, you know what I mean? You, you, you could be uh, asking your grandkids to read it to you while your eyes have failed. You'll be reading the next <laughs> issue of the gaming thing. Um, just a little bit of conjecture about this. Obviously, Chris is... You know, you're heavily into it. You've collected the series hmm. already. Uh, yes. I, I've seen, I'd say, the pertinent scenes. Sure. We'll leave it at that. You know what you know what they are, most likely. <laughs> and I've I've seen, you know, I know what it looks like, and I know about it, but I've definitely never sat and read it. But there were there were two problems with the Marvel reprint. Uh, the the number one thing in my mind was price. Yes. It was flat out too much money for reprints. It you was. know this this is stuff that was. Done and though expensive and hard to get, available. You know, yeah, they, it, they treated it like a boutique. They treated and it really. I didn't mean, do it any favors. It, they should not have priced it higher than their regular comics, which they did. No. It was a buck higher than Spider-Man mm-hmm. and whatever else. And it, there was no need for it. You know, this is so this should have been a layup. Now, I think, I think that if we were to tell more of Marvel story that we don't know, I think that possibly the financial arrangements made. <laughs> Were Possibly. such that they dictated the necessity for that. <laughs> uh, the other problem, though, Chris, and you might disagree with this, is uh, dipping back into the originals, reprinting all the original stuff first. Uh, that was, yeah, because I think that made people gun shy. Um, because, I mean, those, I, I'm, I'm looking at uh, Miracle Man Classic Volume 1 on my shelf here. Yeah. And I mean, it's got a cover price of $34.99 US. So you spend on Amazon, sight unseen, 
$35 expecting right. the first six issues of Alan Moore's run, and you get this stuff from the 50s. It's like, and, and, or and the it, 40s even. And it's it's, it's going to turn a lot of people off because that's not... Of course. You know, that's it's the kind of thing, it's the kind of thing a completionist, a completist would want to have. Yes. Uh, but people interested in the, you know, the saucy stories, as I think would be true for most people, you know, I mean... We'll, we're a couple of people that can actually we can have a good time with some Silver Age stuff, but sure. I definitely don't think that that's you know indicative of of most people. So no, certainly they, not. They should have gone right to the Alan Moore and back 100%. and backfilled the rest of it. You know what I mean? Over sure, time. or even just did it did it digital or whatever they do to save money on these stories that are niche. Something. I mean, what, what I would have done because I would have figured Roman a digest. Exactly. That's how I would have done something yeah. like that, or I would have even done like a box set because I, I know there are people. That do sure. want to have it, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So I would have made it kind of an, an addition for them that would have done it all one shot, and you might have to pay 50, 70, no, actually knowing Marvel, you'd pay 75, 100 bucks, but you'd have it, you know what I mean? You, you would have yeah. all of the all of the pre-stuff. Uh, so uh, You'd have the boutique treatment with the boutique price, so it's, it's, it would make sense. Everybody wins, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. So that that's that, those are the two things I think that they, they flubbed on. It should have been cheaper. Uh, mm-hmm. Except for the new, you know, the new issues should be. Well, I think they should have priced them cheaper than new issues, and then when the new issues come out, you can price those according to, you know, sure the demand, new comics, and to the demand. Sure. But uh, and I think they should have started reprinting their earlier stuff. But uh, did you get Absolutely. all of those Marvel reprints? I mean, you have the Eclipse. I have all of them. You have every I've, version. I've, I bought all of them because I wanted to support them, and uh, and I'm burned because I'm still waiting on the silver. Age. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, it takes more than a one. It does, doesn't it? But uh, <laughs> um, I, I definitely agree with you that they they did start off on the wrong foot. Um, they should have, and, and this is me, just comic fan idiot here, saying they should have done something more to get Alan's name on it. Yeah, because I'm sure he's a reasonable guy. Where if it would have been like. You know what? If you can put your name, if you can co-sign this, this will help the Anglo family more. Absolutely. You know, that's exactly you what know? I was just thinking. It's, yeah. So here you go. You know, we can put the original writer on it and be all, you know, Marvel edgy. But, uh, or, or you can, you know, sign and we can make sure Anglo is taken care of because these books will sell more. Absolutely. Um, you are, that's it, definitely, I mean, his name would have pushed, it might have doubled the order. Could you, right yeah, could you imagine Alan Moore writing for Marvel again? Oh, I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, he's. It, it's unthinkable. Yeah. And uh, and also they should have, you know, we talk about how they should have priced it similar to the current stuff, but they, the thing of it is, there's this dissonance here because they priced it so far above the regular stuff, but they treated it like the normal stuff. So yeah. they had Skate 800 variant. Co- we had stupid Scotty Young baby covers. I know. For Miracle Man. I know. That, I... that treats it like it's disposable garbage to me, where this should have been. Something more. Uh, I hate the word epic, but it should have been more epic. There well, should have been, you know, you should have heard the trumpets when this book came out. You know, it's it's two ways to look at. It. I definitely I know what you mean by having giving it the typical, you know, flashy uh, yeah. Jack the Numbers blank cover. I mean, yeah, this, this, like... this, this is why the attrition between issues one and two are often half. It's sure. because of those variants, you know, people trying to get all those things. Uh, but you know, also as reprints though. Treat them like reprints, you know what I mean? Uh, maybe mm-hmm. sell them for four bucks, even three bucks a piece or whatever. Sure. And the trumpet would be in the in the marketing and promotion of it, I would think. But uh, whatever. I think they. I think another thing they could have done, which it, it's a, like a plus and a minus for like harder core comic fans and collectors, but uh, 
these were originally in Warrior magazine. So the art doesn't really match up to a standard comic trim. Right. So maybe you publish those first few in a bigger, a bigger that would have been cool. uh, in the, eight, in the A5 format, right? That sure, that is. sure. Uh, yeah, that would have been cool, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think it would have drawn more attention to it. It would have justified a higher price point. It might have cost more to do too, but uh, it, I think it would have uh, it would have made it stand apart from everything else on the shelf a little bit more than here's the here's the Miracle Man as a hot dog. Here's Miracle Man as a dog. Here's Miracle Man as a baby. Covered. Right, right, so right. Something yeah. more prestigious, and, and and maybe something to explain why this is important. You know, the, the, yes. what we're looking at with 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 Marvel Man uh, under Alan Moore. Is the beginning of something that now we get way too much of, but at least it was the beginnings of it. <laughs> deconstruction, the yes. deconstructing of a superhero, and that really was the first time it was done in a serious way. You know that it wasn't sure. a Murray Boltonoff goofy. Yeah. goofy goof. You know what I mean? Uh, so anyway, all that being said, that stuff is still out there. Let me tell you, folks, I've seen it in piles at the old uh, LCS, so you can go get yourself some of those. Uh, Hardbacks or whatever, or probably I guess they're all digital now, right? All the ones that Marvel I, put out. I don't know. They might be. I never, I never thought to check, but maybe I'll give it a look mm-hmm. now. Maybe that's my chance to give it a look myself. But there if you, you out mm-hmm. there in listener land, and I, I want to take a minute to thank you, Chris, for putting this together. <laughs> it took you a long time, and I know a lot of times Over a year. it was yeah. really <laughs> racking your brain trying to get get into the uh, legalese of it. And I think you did as good a job as anyone could possibly. Thank you. To do. So uh, if you want to heap praise on Chris or if you want to tell us all about your memories of Marvel Man or ask us what the hell we were talking about, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic t-mail history. Uh, we're also on Tumblr, cosmic t-mail history dot You can find uh, us on Twitter at cosmic t-mail and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. See our weekly writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com and see Chris's daily writings on his personal blog, Chris is on infiniteearth.com, where gonna you know, spoil it for the people, as of today's <laughs> recording, mm-hmm. you've done eight hundred consecutive days without missing one. And of course, the special most special book that we've been talking about for years now is uh was Lady Cup number one. Lady first, Cup first issue <laughs> the first special. Issue special yep. So uh which you got recently. So yeah, they, you gotta check it out. There's a different DC comic every single day for eight hundred good days and going, folks. Uh <laughs> you got a you got a full review, got pictures, got some great insight and commentary. Plus he's got ads, plus he does the backups. Even if they suck, so I mean, this is because they usually do. It's they usually do. Even today, <laughs> this is actually a truism throughout all of comics. So, uh, you know, it's like I say, it's the next best thing to reading the actual comic. Go check it out. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. You can also check out the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where we throw our show notes, uh, added tidbits, and all sorts of good stuff here. I We recently broke up the Cosmic Treadmill archives uh, over four pages instead of the one page that usually refuses to load because there's so much on it. Right. So <laughs> we've got the first 25, then the first you know, 25 through 50 or whatever. It's, it, it's easier to see You'll them. You'll figure it out, I think. Yeah, it's not so bad. <laughs> Uh, you can find us on YouTube by searching YouTube for Weird Comics History if you leave the spaces out. That's right. And that's uh, sometimes if you like to listen to podcasts that way. I know I do that at work. That's the way you can do it also. But uh, mm-hmm. I think that's all we got for this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? I think that'll do it. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> Until next time, my miraculous listeners, I want you to keep it weird historically. I can't keep up with what's been going down I think my heart must just be slowing down Beautiful. They land at six o'clock and.